You are listening to Politically Entertaining, your Cliff's Notes to American Politics. And now your host, Frank and Byron. We got another one of those special Politically Entertaining episodes for you. We have a great guest with us today. She is the former Attorney General for North Dakota and the first elected female Senator from North Dakota serving from 2013 to 2019. She contributes on CNBC, and she was just recently on Real Time with Bill Maher on HBO. Senator Heitkamp, how are you doing today? I am doing so well, because I'm in North Dakota and not Washington, D.C. Hmm. You don't miss us? <laughs> I miss you. I just, I mean, you know, you know how frustrating it is. You, you, I mean, I, what's so interesting is you guys get, you know, kind of a catbird seat to watch what's going on. And you must just shake your head on a lot of days saying, why is this so hard for these people to get stuff done? And, you know, now that I'm not in it every day, I mean, basically what happens is you, you end up um, kind of seeing it the way the rest of the, the, the country sees it in a lot of ways. You understand some of the kind of challenges, but you know, it's, it's really frustrating to watch. And so it's been interesting to watch this transition, sad mm -hmm. to watch the transition in some ways because of how it came about, but it seems like things are happening now, but it doesn't seem like they're getting along any better. You are so, so correct. Uh, we, we definitely thank you for joining us. And I, I, I did want to jump right in with, um, so, with something recent, they just passed the uh, COVID bill earlier this month. And my first question for you is, are you for a $15 minimum wage? And if so, would you have wanted that in this COVID bill or do you think it should have been separate? Well, I am way in favor of $15 minimum wage. Uh, I think the problem, and you know this, the problem is that you've got all these rules on, that, that's my puppy, I'm sorry. We got all these rules on what's, uh, What's the reality of um, what can go in a, in a reconciliation package that only needs, you know, the 50 plus one vote um, to pass. And so I wasn't for changing the rules to jam minimum wage in there. I'd love to see a consensus on minimum wage. So um, uh, number one, to, for, for people in leadership to send a message to working people in this country that you're, you're valued, you're valued at least at uh, uh, $32,000 a year. You know, one of the challenges I think that we have with the minimum wage is we talk about $15 an hour and everybody thinks, so oh, when I was a kid, I only made two or three or whatever. And I just want to say, so someone right now, the minimum wage right now for someone working 40 hours a week is just a little bit over $15,000. I'd love to, to see anyone do the math on whether in fact we could anyone, a family could survive on working full-time on where we are right now. And even if you move it to 15, it's just north of uh, $30,000 a year. Even in the poorest of states with the uh, cheapest living conditions, you can't make it working full-time on, you know, $32,000 a year. You just can't. Yeah. And like gas prices have gone up, cost of living has gone up. Everything goes up except minimum wage and they, they expect people to survive off of that. So it's crazy when you think about it. Uh, so that that's what was recent. I want to rewind back a couple of months. We all saw January 6th. Um, Frank and I did an episode on that. I was a part of that, obviously. Uh, and 
the House decided to charge former President Trump with incitement of insurrection. Uh, my question to you is, do you think the House did enough to try to convict them or should they have included uh, their election of duty? And how would you have voted if you were still in the Senate? I think that the House, um, you know, if, if, the way I always explain this when people say, what do you think? I say, the House basically had enough to indict the president. They had enough information. And this isn't a criminal procedure, but I think the analogy holds. It was the Senate's job to try him. And if I have a criticism, I think they should have called witnesses. I think they should have, um, you know, put it front row and center, not just have the yak yak and the videos. I understand the videos had huge impact, but what would have been the impact if they had called a number of the DC officers, even if you guys didn't want to testify, but the DC officers, what would have been the impact if they had actually subpoenaed some of the people who were organizing? And so I know they didn't want to draw it out. And I think that the new president, and I have no inside information on this, probably wanted to lay down the marker and, and move on. But I think it was a serious enough, uh, uh, I mean, I, I think that it was an American tragedy and it deserved a bigger public airing of what actually happened that day and why the president was responsible for what happened. Yeah, the, the Constellation Prize was that we got the most votes ever to remove a president from office with 57 to 43, but you still kind of feel like, well, I feel like justice wasn't done, but. I, I mean, and, and we'll see if there's any indictments that come, you know, but, but honestly, I, I just feel like, like there was this sense of expediency um, to get other things done. And we're obviously in the middle of a pandemic crisis. We're in the middle of a transition and the new president wants to get things passed like the reconciliation package, which, oh, by the way, not one Republican voted for. And, and so, so I get the kind of timing issue, but I think that when history looks back, they will believe that there should have been a much more, um, uh, a much broader airing of what happened that day. So Senator Eichem, how are you doing? This is Frank. Hey, Frank. Uh, one of the things you mentioned, and, I, and I've listened to um, some of your stuff on CNBC, but one of the things I hear, and I've read an article you wrote, um, and one of the things you hit on is the Democrats really struggle with their messaging. Um, <laughs> and, 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 so, and so just, this is kind of a two-part question. So obviously, there, there's a larger problem that you pointed out a year ago. You wrote an article, I think, in April of 2019 about um, the Democrats losing out on rural voters and how it's going to hurt them. And I really do believe that if it wasn't for the pandemic, that may have actually caused them in the general election. It just so happened that I believe that that event swung things to where it was. It, it moved it in the Democrats' favor. But going forward, how can the Democratic Party regain the messaging that hey, they they want they, they're one a party for the people because it's almost like they've lost that messaging, even though the Republican Party does things that are that that go against the will of their base, so to speak. Sometimes, how do the Democrats regain their footing and have a me a messaging that they're for the national good of the people? Well, the, I mean, I think the first thing you have to do is not come across like you know better. 
And I think one of the things that the Democratic Party always does is even though their policies are much more consistent with helping the working people of this country, the working people, when they listen to them, they feel like they're being lectured to or talked down to. And so it's about tone. One of the things that I recently was talking about is my oil field workers. Now, these are guys who make, you know, they got high school educations. They make about $120,000 a year and they work their ass off. I mean, I will tell you that's hard, tough, you know, difficult work. And but yet when you compare that work that they do to working in a factory or doing other industrial stuff, they would have to take a pay cut of about 50 percent. And so they're able to really provide for their families working in the oil patch. And so when they asked Biden's uh, uh, climate czar, they asked uh, uh, John Kerry, well, what are you going to say to the oil field workers? What are you going to say to the energy workers? And he said, well, they can make solar panels. And I think, how, how can you not understand how insulting that is? I mean, so if somebody says to John Kerry, you just lost the election, what are you going to do? And what do you think John Kerry should do? And you say, well, I think he should um, uh, become, become a banker at the local community bank. I mean, who gets to pick for people? And, and, and that's my point, is that even though the policies are so consistent with working people in this country, even though farmers always do better when the Democrats are in office, they somehow don't like Democrats. And, and we can't just say, oh, that's Fox News or that's this or that's that. You've got to look internally and say, why are you giving off that vibe? Why do they think that you're not for them why, or with them, not just for them, but with them? Why do they feel like that? And how do you change the way you approach working people in this country? When I started out in politics, my base were elderly and working people. I mean, the people who, like I always say, shower at night when they get home. They don't shower in the morning to go to work and put on a suit. They shower at night after they come home and haven't worked all day and sweat all day. How do we win those folks back? And we won't win them back with just good, good policy unless we, number one, publicize it and talk about it. But we also won't win them back unless they feel like we're with them and not uh, against them. Wow, that's, that's a really, really good answer. Uh, one of the other questions that I have is even if it feels like even when the Democrats do pass something like this COVID bill, which is a good thing and no Republicans voted for it, it feels like they don't capitalize on that messaging that, hey, even though you know, you're know you hurting and, you're, and you need the stimulus, we are the only ones that voted for it. Uh, I mean, I, I guess, let me see how to frame this. Is there a way that the Democrats can become more aggressive without looking there. Like you said, they already have this arrogant feel to them, I guess, in some circles. But is there a way to champion what they're doing without coming off uh, as, as you know, like the elitist that I think a lot of people look at them as the, you know, kind of now? Okay, um, absolutely. And I have been, I mean, I, I, my teeth hurt. They've been clenched so hard watching this. And it's the classic, Democrat rule. You have a big victory. It's the right, it's the right policy. It's the right move. It, it speaks to people that we think we represent. And then we just expect them to know, you know, we aren't going to talk about it. And so I would tell you that, you know, I've been looking at what I would do if I were still in politics. And I, you think about this, when they voted for the tax bill, which was all Republicans who voted for that bill, I didn't vote for it. I thought it was an abomination. 
when I was there. So the tax bill. So let's let's just do some comparisons. That tax bill gave $2 million in tax breaks for owners of racehorses. But yet they voted against a $14,000 stimulus check to working people. The tax bill gave $135 billion in tax relief for 43,000 millionaires in this country. But yet they couldn't find in their heart to vote for $130 billion for public schools to help kids get ahead. They voted for that tax bill was a $6.3 billion tax write-out for business lunches. That was in one of the COVID packages. But they wouldn't vote to save retirees' pensions. I mean, you, you, it, you've got to make this about their values. They value taking care of the rich more than they value the middle class. And you have to just hammer and hammer away and hammer away. And you have to get to that point when they stand up in a public forum or, or you know, people who voted against it, you got five people in the room standing up saying, why did you think it was more important to give a racehorse owner a big tax break than to give me $1,400 when my family's been struggling? What, what are they gonna say? Oh, well, you just don't understand, you know, how complicated the bills were. No, they weren't that complicated. This was a binary choice. Are you standing with the, with the most wealthy, you know, uh, uh, lucky people in the country? Or are you standing with working people? And when you look at the record, the Democratic Party is standing with working people. And we've got to point that out. And we've got to hammer it home. And we've got to do it in the moment, Frank. And that's what you're saying. You know, we had this great moment, this bill passed, it's doing great things for the economy, it's doing great things for working families, especially those with kids. It's great doing great things to reduce child poverty. And we just think we're just going to say it once and everybody's going to know we did it. You have to make this about their values versus our values. And then we'll start winning working class people back again. I've often said the Democrat Party needs uh, their own version of Frank Luntz, uh, yeah. words that work, because even now with this COVID bill, like the narrative is only 5% is really going to COVID relief. And that's just not true. But it's been said so much that I'm hearing more and more people cling on to that, that, hey, they passed this bill, but only 5% of it, of it is actually helping uh, COVID. It's more well, like eighty-five percent of it is. Once you yeah, add I mean, it 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 is a ridiculous thing to say. I mean, you know, now you know what the, the other thing that's happening right now is they have. Um, I think it's open secrets. I can't remember one of the one of the watchdog or organizations has created a website, so you can go out and check to see what businesses what they got in PPP loans. Mm -hmm. It is a scandal. It is a scandal. You know, in, in North Dakota, liquor stores got PPP. Trust me, one business that did really freaking well in COVID, better than any other business, right. <laughs> in fact, saw their business increase was the liquor store. Exactly. Why the hell should they get COVID relief? <laughs> but yet they're saying, well, these people are working. They don't need that 1400 And I want to say, you know what? What do you know about their life? What do you know about their life? Exactly. We are, we're talking to Heidi Heitkamp, former senator from North Dakota. Um, I wanted, so uh, the Obama administration passed, they passed Obamacare, the, the ACA back in 2009 before you got there. And I've always said, I could be wrong, always said that he spent, him and the Democrats spent a lot of political capital mm -hmm. getting, 
And to me, the numbers showed in 2010, not long after the passage of that bill, they lost six seats in the Senate, 63 in the House. And then four years after that, nine more seats in the Senate, 13 more in the House. And they wound up losing, he, he wound up losing both houses. And even now they have, I you can barely call this a majority in the Senate. It's 50-50 it's on tied votes. They have Vice President Harris to break that tiebreaker. So it's barely a majority right now. My question to you is, what should the Democrat, what should the Democrats try and pass? Because they have a very small window, because depending on how the elections go two years from now, they could lose this majority. So majority. So what should they try to pass while they have the majority now? And what mistakes should they avoid to repeat a 2010 or a 2014 when they had all these losses? Well, I, I think one of the problems, again, with it, it, going back to your original question, which was, you know, ACA is kind of the, here's the example of what happened. But the problem with the ACA is, number one, there was all that period of uncertainty, remember? And then the, the web page didn't work and people yeah. thought they were going to lose something and they didn't know. The Democrats didn't go bold enough on, on, um, on health care. They, they, they played into the, the handbook of the Republicans. In fact, Obamacare was pretty much John McCain's plan, which was to mandate health insurance and make uh, corporations above a certain size actually carry health insurance. And that would get more people on the insurance rolls. Had they just offered a public option, you know, said, OK, you know, we're going to create a marketplace that competes with private insurance and offers a better product. So private insurance are going to have to be more competitive, you know, price-wise, and they're going to have to be more user-friendly, more, more patient-friendly than what they've been in terms of what they approve. And, and that would not have disrupted the whole healthcare system. So, so I, would, I would have argued that the mistake that they made was not doing a public option in Obamacare. We took so much heat for it to begin with, even though it was chock full of stuff that people really wanted. And they could demonize it because it was an unknown for those years. And they started talking about how much it was going to cost and how it was going to take away your health care. And then some of some of that actually, um, you know, that you can keep your doctor if you want to keep your doctor wasn't true. And so they just hammered away. And they're really good at playing offense. They're really good at offense. And we are terrible at defense. Oh, and, you know, we're in March Madness season. You've got to play both sides, right? Yeah. Right. both sides of the court. And so the first thing that I would say is they should be playing offense on what they just did and a values comparison on COVID relief and, and the policies of the Republican Party. And then they need to turn to those things that put people back to work, that give people a sense of optimism. And I would say that's infrastructure. And I think that's where Biden's going to go next. I think it's where the the folks are going to go next and there'll be a lot of pearl clushing. Oh, the debt and deficit. None of that happened when they passed um, $1.9 trillion of tax relief. And so I, I am concerned long term about debt and deficit, but not if it's invested in infrastructure that we need to do anyway. And so I would say find those things like this COVID relief package that are very popular with the public, which I think uh, infrastructure is. But you've got to message it. You've got to tell people what you're doing and why your values and how, why your government spending is so much better than what was been done in the past so that people understand that there's a choice here between people who will invest in human beings and invest in the services that people need 
and people who will just simply say, hand it to the millionaires and, you know, hope it trickles down. So we, we definitely value your time. So we'll get you out of here with this question. Um, you mentioned some of the things Democrats can do to try and, uh, you know, do better two years from now. I know you're also working, you're on the board of the, the One Country Project. Uh, just tell, tell our listeners a little bit about what that's about and what you got, how you're you hoping know, to reach out to more voters. Yeah, it goes back to what Byron was saying about, you know, the challenges that I saw in rural America. And, you know, I, I know that I recently, you know, when you look at the numbers, you know, Biden won by 7 million votes, but it was only 45,000 votes in yeah. key states collectively made him the president. So you can bemoan and say, oh, my goodness, the system is totally effed up and, you know, we need to fix that. And you're not going to get a constitutional amendment. So you're going to have to start learning how to win in states like mine again. And so I always say one country is my attempt to reintroduce the Democratic Party to rural America and rural America to the Democratic Party. And a lot of people think, let it go. It doesn't matter. Time after time after time these close races, and certainly the Senate majority is dependent on being competitive in states like North and South Dakota, which usually, you, you know, not that long ago had um, four Democratic senators. And so what we're trying to do is number one, figure out what, what the needs are. Um, I think I have a pretty good handle on that coming from a town of 90 people. That's not 90,000, it's 90. Um, so I feel like, like um, there needs to be this bridge between kind of the Democratic Party of the last 10 years and what I hope the Democratic Party can be. And um, when, I, when I talk about this, I tell people, guess what? What a cab driver in New York, maybe a first generation or maybe an immigrant coming to this country, what they want is no different than what a small business owner wants for America. They want the same things for America, but we have spent so much time dividing this country regionally, ethnically, you know, uh, uh, based on our religion, uh, gender. I mean, everybody's looking for some kind of little, you know, pigeonhole. We're Americans and we all want the same thing. And that's, you know, our country to be successful, our families to be successful, that we wanna, we wanna make sure that everybody has an opportunity and that opportunity is equal. Um, and, and so when we focus on those things that we all mutually want America to be and we want for our families, we can bring, you know, the, this country back together. And that's really what uh, one country is all about. That's why I called it one country, by the way. You know, everybody's saying, well, the rural block. I said, no, that, that's exactly what I don't want to be. I don't want to be this just about, you know, rural America. And yeah, you better listen to us. I want to say we've got to listen to each other. If we want one country, we want our country governable and we want to be successful. I like it, I like it. Frank actually had one more question, uh, if you have time for it. I do, go ahead. Awesome, thank, thank you, Senator, I, I do apologize. So the one, the one thing I wanna know is, obviously we talked about January 6th and we talked about not just the, the insurrections getting lost, but the, the idea of trying to challenge the votes and potentially overturn them. What 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 does that say about the democracy going forward? Will will we see? Do do we have a democracy that can handle a losing 
party or or do have we now introduced a level where no matter what happens on either side there will be a system of challenges that maybe potentially could systemically return the election around if the right majorities are in you know house or the senate for the other thing right because what if what if the republicans had the majority enough votes in the Senate to overturn with the challenge in the House, you know? So I think those are things that concern, you know, me when I look at democracies, like, do we have a democracy? And and while I understand what you're saying about one country, will do, do we have one country now that democracy can reign in going forward? Do you believe that? I, if, if, if I were still in the Senate, I would be putting together a whole group of people um, to sit down and say, okay, the legacy of what happened, you know, of the last four years culminating in January 6th, is that our democracy for years has been on the honor system. You know, we're going to give you our tax returns. That's just a tradition. We're going to, you know, engage in the peaceful transfer of power. That's just the tradition. And so for years, we've nominated and elected and defeated people who have been gracious in defeat. John Kerry, um, uh, you know, I, uh, Al Gore, one of the most contentious elections ever presiding over a process exactly like January 6th and, and, and doing it with grace. I mean, that's all based on the character of the people who hold office. One thing that we've learned is that when you elect somebody with no honor, with no sense of truthfulness, with only, you know, only uh, a selfish desire to be front row and center, the democracy doesn't function the way it should function. And so I think we all, the lesson that we should take is that this democracy needs harder and faster rules, right? We can't rely on honor of the person who is sitting in that chair any longer because we've seen what a dishonorable person can do to our democracy. So we need to strengthen institutions. And, and to me, um, you know, the, this idea of taking shortcuts, I didn't win, so I'm gonna take a shortcut and bully someone down in Georgia or, or you know, uh, threaten someone's life in, in Arizona, uh, you know, and then culminating in literally, as you say, you're the party of law and order. You know, and, and you know, I, I would tell you, I was on um, ABC on January 6th, just watching the process before it hit the fan. And people said, were, were you surprised by the violence? I said, I was only surprised that the leadership, and I don't blame the Capitol Police, but the leadership was so ill-prepared because anyone who lived where I lived knew that this was a steaming pile, that this was going to explode on someone. And so I think that we, the lessons that we should take, if they do do a, G, a January 6th commission, it should also include reestablishing these traditions and norms and putting some teeth in it, like making sure that the IG, the inspector generals have um, broader authority and ha can be fired only for cause and have a review process when, that, when, when somebody like Donald Trump comes in and fires the IG for the State Department. You know, we've got to look at all the things that happened, not just what happened on January 6th, but all of the norms that were broken that, that protect our democracy and how do we recover those norms, uh, making the assumption now that we know 
that dishonorable people can sit in the White House. Gratefully, the American public made a corrective action. But for four years and two impeachments, we had someone with no honor, with no sense of tradition, no sense of responsibility to this country. We had only a selfish narcissist. And that creates a vulnerability in our democracy that we need to take seriously. It's, it's, it's really sad because after 9-11, you know, everyone came together when uh, Gabby Giffords, you mentioned Arizona, when she was yeah. shot, the members came together. When Scalise was shot yeah. several, a few years ago, I remember collectively the House clapping on his return. But for whatever reason, after January 6th, you know, for a split second, we saw members saying, you know, this was a travesty. But as the days went on, you see certain members saying things like, well, if it was Black Lives Matter, I would have been scared, but this wasn't, so it wasn't a big deal, so. Well, I, you know, I, I, I don't want to belabor you guys either, but one of the things that I've been talking about, I, you know, you mentioned that I was the attorney general in North Dakota, I, and I ran a law enforcement agency, and so, you know, uh, you know, still some of my best pals in North Dakota are the people that I worked with in law enforcement. And so I understand how difficult that is, and I understand, you know, I mean, I just, I watched that and I have to tell you, not only did I think about you guys, but I thought about your wives and your husbands sitting home watching it and worried. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, people don't, don't understand um, that. I, I think, I think if you haven't, if you haven't been in that world, um, I think they, they don't realize how hurtful it can be when they say things like, well, if this were Black Lives Matter, I would have been scared. But, and what Donald Trump did that, that will be his lasting legacy and it will be a lasting burden on the Republican party is he invited in to the tent, into the governing tent, white supremacist groups, yeah. you, know, you know, the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys. I don't include the crazy Q people, even though I think they could be violent. I think they're just crazy. But, but, you know, when you, when you think about these white supremacy groups and that, that they've never been invited and given political power and Donald Trump gave them political power and this is the end result. And how do we drive that force back now that they've had that power? Um, and, and I think that's going to be a challenge for the Republican Party. And when you said, well, is this going to be challenged again? Um, these were paramilitary groups that were very interested in being the militia for Donald Trump, not for the country, but for Donald Trump, because they see him as somebody who all of a sudden gave legitimacy to, to their anti-American and racist beliefs. And so, um, you know, they've got some healing to do over in the Republican Party. But I, but I will tell you that the vast majority of people um, in this country, look at all of you and watched in horror for all of you and for your families. But they also look at all of you as heroes. And, you know, I, I, I said when, when I was on ABC, they said, well, the Capitol Police, because there was a lot of criticism, remember, when it was happening because people were coming in and it looked like they were unimpeded. And I said, wait a minute, the Capitol Police are defending and protecting the members right now. They're not going to worry about who's in the rotunda unless there's a member in the rotunda. So just cut them some slack. They're overrun here. And, and, and 
I think that when you see and you see the videos and you see the bravery, um, I'm reminded of the time I told a friend of mine, Mark, and you guys know Mark too. He's retired since then. And, and he was talking about, you know, when you go through the screenings and people not taking that screening seriously, I said, you know, the Capitol Police guard the most significant image of America's democracy. And they do it every day with pride. And I watched as you guys had to handcuff the, the people in wheelchairs when they were protesting the repeal of the ACA, because they, you know, that was your job. And I don't know that there is a tougher job in law enforcement than what you guys do, because it is, it is so important to the country, but it is so important to achieve that balance between First Amendment and, and the right to express yourself and the protection of this, this, you know, cathedral of our democracy. And I just am so proud of all the friendships that I have within the Capitol Police. And um, just want to, again, on behalf of myself, my family, and I hope the people of North Dakota, thank you for your bravery. Thank you for everything that you do for our country. I sincerely appreciate that. I can't thank you enough for those words. Uh, Senator Heitkamp of North Dakota. Uh, Senator, she calls it the better Dakota, by the way. Uh, <laughs> it is. <laughs> if, if you're ever in D.C., please let me know. And I want to let the listeners know she used to hurt her hand trying to punch my arm. Oh, 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 oh. It just, let me tell you, it's like marshmallow. Oh, like no, a marshmallow. There is nothing there. And, you know, if you if you went, uh, you know, for the for the chest, only because the vest was there would you ever uh, hurt your hand. Okay, okay. Only because the vest was we'll, there. We'll, we'll let you have that, then. <laughs> <laughs> we appreciate your time, Senator. Thank you so much. Love you all. Thank you. Say hi to everybody for me. Will do. Thank you for listening to Politically Entertaining. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes and visit politicallyentertaining.com for the latest in political news and updates.